Well, the series is called Life in a Word, and what we've said each week is that sometimes you can summarize a person's whole life in one word, at least a season in our life, and that's what we've based this series upon. Now, today the word we're taking is awakened, and maybe some of you can think back to a time in your life uh, where suddenly you had a very personal, very powerful awakening. Could be that your whole life could be described by awakened. I've never been the same since I was awakened. There's a guy, his, uh, his name is a little hard to pronounce, it's Shyam Yadal. And Shyam Yadal, like a lot of us guys, occasionally bumped his head. So he bumped his head. How many have bumped your head recently, you guys? Well, I don't know why we do. We just bump into things. So Shyam Yadal bumped his head and... You know, he didn't think anything of it. I bumped my head. I'm not going to think much about it. But then he went home and kind of rubbed his head, and he felt, oh, shoot, that's sore. And then he noticed a bump. But being a guy, what do we say? Ah, it's a bump. Big deal. So he doesn't think much of it. Time goes on, and then he noticed, gee whiz, that bump, instead of getting smaller, that bump's getting bigger. But he's a guy. And the guy's like, ah, so what? So he goes to his barber. Well, who else would you go to? You say, Barbara, can you kind of make this not so noticeable? <laughs> you know? Barbara says, sure. In fact, I have a picture of him, uh, Cheyenne. There's Cheyenne. And he's a 74-year-old man living in India. And so five years later, he has an awakening. And instead of going to the barber, the lights go on. And he says, huh, think maybe I need to go to the doctor. Here's what awoke him. That's real. <laughs> That's real. He bumped his head, and this thing started growing. He actually had his barber in the early days trim it up with the scissors until the barber couldn't trim it anymore. And then he thought, hmm, maybe I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> so he had an awakening. Let me give you a little awakening in my own life. I had this car. Back, I bought it in 1970. It's a 1970 Toyota Corolla. I had that exact color. And um, I was driving it happily for about a year, year and a half, I suppose. And I had just come back from purchasing some clothes back in 1970, 71. The clothes I purchased, it would have been some elephant bell-bottom, skin-tight, and, and a seersucker type of a shirt to go along with my mid-hair, you know, ha back hair in my mid, mid of my back. And I'm driving happily home from Chess King. That was a cool store to buy at in those days. And all of a sudden, I heard this noise coming from the motor of my car. It sounded like there was an alien inside my car with a small hammer trying to bang their way out from inside. So I thought I should stop and see what is going on. Well, when I stopped, my motor would not restart. Now, I want to lead you guys in a little unified saying. Can you all say together, try this, nobody, nobody. Is, is that stupid. <laughs> yes, I was. It seems that the car required oil. I was 21. I did not know this. Can you say it again? Nobody. Yes, I am. <laughs> I won the award, honestly. I was that stupid. Ruined the engine in my Toyota Corolla because I honestly didn't know that you had to do anything except put gas in a vehicle. That's how stupid. But I had an awakening when I had to replace the motor. 
in the new car. So awakenings come in a lot of ways, a lot of forms, and we're going to meet a man today that had an awakening that would be transforming. Now, he's interesting for a number of reasons. I'm going to let the text kind of develop that for us. But I think he's going to help a lot of us. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm just going to assume something, having talked to enough people in my life. I'm going to assume that some of us in this room have had doubts. And I don't mean doubts about just all kinds of things. I mean specifically, you've had doubts about God. You've had doubts Maybe even about the reality of God. Maybe you've had doubts about this whole business of putting your trust in Christ and following him. Maybe you've had doubts about the resurrection of Christ itself. So you're going to see that those doubts are not just, um, you know, yours, but they were held by someone that was very, very close to Jesus. So let's go ahead and turn in your Bibles and ones that are near you on the chair to page 1227. And if you brought your own Bible, it'll be John's Gospel, chapter 20 is where we'll start. We'll look at a couple other things. But in John's Gospel, chapter 20, we want to start in verse 19. And I kind of give you the context. This is after Jesus has been crucified. And it's now the first Sunday that we recognize today as Easter. But they hadn't seen Jesus yet, that he had risen from the dead. They just knew that he was dead. So let's go to chapter 20, verse 19. It says, On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, Sunday is considered the first day of the week for a Jew, the disciples had gathered together and locked the doors of the place because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders had put Jesus on the cross. The disciples were afraid they might follow it says, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his what? His hands and, remember, pierced hands, nails in the hands, nails through the feet, spear in the side. He showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. We'll pause there and go straight to verse 24. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe it. And we'll pause for a minute. Let's, let's just feel the tension of this. So Jesus appears alive from the dead on the first day, just as he said that he would rise on the third day. He did. He appears to the disciples, but one of them is not there, Thomas. They're exhilarated. They're saying, it's true, Thomas, it's true. The things that Jesus kept telling us from the beginning of his ministry, in the middle of his ministry, multiple times toward the end that he would be executed by the leaders, but that he would rise from the dead on the third day. It's true. We've seen him. We saw the wounds in his hands and in his side. And Thomas, who was not there, says, yeah, right, right. I'm not going to believe this until I put my finger in the wounds in his hands myself and the wound in his side. Let, let yourself feel the utter skepticism 
of this individual who had followed Jesus for three and a half years, who had witnessed all Jesus' miracles for three and a half years, who had literally seen Jesus raise a little girl from the dead, a widow, a widow's son from the dead, and a man named Lazarus from the dead. In fact, we only have a few places where Thomas is speaking in the Scripture, and one of them is in, is in John chapter 11. And it's really an interesting portion of Scripture because Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus, my friend, your friend, is dead. And he had been dead and in the tomb for four days and Jesus tells them specifically, he, he's been in the tomb for four days. And Thomas says something rather bizarre. He says, ah, let us go and die also. And he didn't understand. Jesus meant that Lazarus was really, truly dead. He thought Jesus was saying some kind of a spiritual you know, parable of some sort. Ah, Lazarus is dead. Let us go die as well. He says, so he, he, doesn't, he doesn't understand it. Then Jesus goes, you might recall the story in John chapter 11. He speaks a word and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. He's been in there for four days. The Jews had a, uh, a superstition that your spirit lingered around your body for three days. But on the fourth day, it was done. It was all gone. Jesus waited till the fourth day. He calls Lazarus. Lazarus comes out of the tomb still wrapped in the burial gauze. And he's alive. Thomas saw that. That was just months before Jesus would go to the cross. In John chapter 14, there's another situation. The very last night that Jesus was with his disciples, he's telling them, it's, the time has come. I'm going to be killed, but don't worry. I'm going to rise. And he says, I'm going to go to be with the Father in John chapter 4. I'm going to go to heaven. He couldn't have made it more clear. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions, many rooms for all of you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Thomas blurts out. Out once again, it's one of the only other places we have Thomas talking. He says, Lord, Lord, I, I, don't, I don't know where you're going, and I don't know how to get there. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. He was going to the heavenly dimension. Thomas is like, I, I don't know. And then in the same passage, Philip says, you know, show us, show us the Father, Lord. That, that'll calm us down. That'll get our nerves under control. And Jesus says, have I been so long with you and you don't know me? And Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. In a Jew's mind, the Father was God in his fullness. Jesus was telling them, I am one with the Father. When you see me, you have met, you have lived for three and a half years with the Father. Thomas experienced all that. And here's why I'm going into this. I know, I know some of you. I know some of you have felt sometimes, if I just saw one of those miracles of Jesus, if, if I would have just been there and saw just one, or if I would have had God just speak to me audibly one time, man, my trust in Jesus, my devotion to God would be like a steamroller. No one or anything would stop me. Man, but, but you know, I never had that. I, I mean, I've never had a miracle. How many have ever thought that thought in your mind? Be honest. You thought, man, if I could have been there, if I would have seen one, boy, would I be a, a bulldozer for Jesus right now. Can I see your hand? Raise them a little higher. You're a little, sheep, a little sheepish about that. Yeah. It's not unusual. It's okay. But think about this. Thomas was there. He saw all the miracles. He saw three different people raised from the dead. There was one other fellow that saw all the miracles, too. He didn't come out too well. Anybody remember his name? Judas. Folks, hearing the voice of God... Seeing God perform miracles does not necessarily 
convert a human soul. Judas experienced it all, and he betrayed Jesus, God in flesh. Thomas saw it all, and Thomas didn't believe Jesus' words. Jesus had repeatedly said he would rise from the dead. Thomas says, no way. Listen, I put my hands in the wounds. I'm not buying it. You're acting like a bunch of scared children is probably what he was thinking. And I'm going to be the adult. You're not being adults. I'm going to be the adult. Unless I see it with my own eyes and touch it with my hands, I'm not buying it. That's the tension that's all in this passage. Let's read on. Let's go back to the passage now. Verse 26. Eight days later, the disciples were again together in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, and he stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, I don't think I've ever read this in my life, and it doesn't bring me to tears, and I don't know exactly why. It's really hard. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in your unbelief or your lack of trust, but believe or trust. Thomas replied to him, and here's the big awakening. My Lord and my what? My God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are the people who have not seen and yet have what? Believed. Believed or trusted. And that would mean you if you've trusted in Christ and you're his follower. And that would mean me. So here's this awakening in Thomas's life. And, and it's a good, good, important awakening because it helps those of us that have doubts because here's a man who was an utter skeptic and it was, it was not because of his trust in Jesus. It was frankly because of his distrust in Jesus. But when he saw Jesus was actually alive from the dead, he couldn't help but to turn around. But then he's authentically converted. He says, my Lord, meaning you're the one that's going to rule my life from now on. You're the one that I want to follow. Your, your will is what I want to know and I want to do. And my God, he knew that Jesus was in fact the creator of the universe just as he had claimed. You see, Jesus had made a lot of claims all through his ministry. He, he stood before a bunch of people and he said, every one of you in all humanity will someday stand before me to be judged. He said to one, another man, he said, your sins are forgiven. He, he made claims. He said to people in John 8, 12, he said, he said that, you know, unless you believe that I'm the one, you'll die in your sins. He claimed to be the one that could give to people eternal life and that no one else could. He made multiple claims that only God could make without the claims being blasphemous. But somehow it just went all over Thomas's head. And it was not until Thomas saw what he could not deny, that Jesus was alive after death. And I'm going to get into this a little bit later about why I think Thomas got confused a little bit later in the message. But let's take it from our perspective today. I think the Spirit of God is always wanting to awaken you and I, awaken people to Jesus' true identity. That was what Thomas needed. Even though he soaked in Jesus' teaching for three and a half years, saw all Jesus' miracles, somehow it went over his head and somehow the teaching that he was 
early in life exposed to, the teaching of the Jews that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would exercise great physical, militaristic, governmental power, throw off the Roman rule, take over the nations of the world, use force to put people in their place and stamp out evil. That's the notion that stuck in the mind of Thomas for some reason. And, and all of Jesus' teaching, listen, I'm just curious about something. You ever met people that they get an idea in their head and you can tell them something and explain to them in a dozen different ways why that idea is wrong, it's incorrect. You could show it to them from every, every angle imaginable and you think you've gotten through to them. You think, okay, now all, you think now they've got it. And then you hear them talk and you realize nothing you've said to them, not one thing has gotten through. How many have ever experienced that? It's, 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 a really, it's a really confusing thing because if you're, if you're relentless like me, you feel like, okay, I, I'm going to explain this again. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I can explain this in such a way that you can't miss it. But if people have an idea stuck in their head, it can be incredibly hard to dislodge it. There are people in churches that have ideas stuck in their heads that need to be dislodged. And I've been trying to dislodge them most of my ministry. <clears throat> One of those notions is that we can have some sort of a token understanding of what Jesus did and who he is. And that that's what God is after. You know, oh, I believe Jesus loved me, died for me, rose again, and yada, yada, yada. I believe he paid the price for my sins, and that's all. That's not what God's looking for. I want to remove that. I've been trying to remove that from people's minds for 30-some years. No, Jesus' sacrificial death for us, his divinity, his miracles, were all meant to show us that God, the creator of the universe, is utterly trustworthy. It was meant to reconcile us back to God from distrusting God, from being suspicious about God, from being scared about God, from thinking that God's not really interested in my happiness, to bringing me to a state where I am utterly convinced of his trustworthiness so that now I put my trust in Christ and I freely start to follow him and I follow him fully because I believe that he loves me more than I love myself and I follow him forever because he changes not. God is looking to change us from the core of our being by putting within us a trust in Jesus, in God, that causes us to want his will more than we want our own will as opposed to these ideas, oh yeah, just let Jesus be your savior and you'll go to heaven for sure, you know. Um, it's just a little bit bigger than that. So awaken to Jesus' true identity. Here's a couple of verses that give us a clearer picture. After Jesus had risen, the disciples all received and Paul received revelation. It says, he, meaning Jesus, existed in the form of who? God. Yet he gave no thought to seizing equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became what? Jesus was always God, but he looked real human. Because that's the best way that God could reveal his true nature to angels and humans. It was by taking on weakness that the glory and strength of God was made the most knowable. Because his power, his almighty power, is always governed by his sacrificial love. So that he is the safest person 
in the universe. And these preachers and teachers that always want you to be afraid of God, they are doing a disservice to Jesus. It says in 1 John 5, 18, it says that God's perfect love is meant to cast out fear in our hearts. And as long as we're afraid of God, we're never going to like God. We're never going to trust him. We're never going to want to do his will. And we're just going to want to get him off our back and on our side any way that we can. We'll be appeasement religionists. And that's not what God wants. He wants people that truly believe that he's trustworthy so that he can lead us into the life of blessing that he's always wanted to lead us into. Here's another one about Jesus in the book of Colossians. Paul writing to followers of Christ in Colossae. It says, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live where? In Christ. Everything that the universe can ever take in about God was in Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. When God was not in that human form of Jesus and Nazareth, there was too much about God that could not be fathomed. But because he took on weakness, both angels and humans could finally understand he's really safe. He's almighty, but he's not all scary. He's all good. He's all merciful. He's all loving. He's full of understanding and compassion. So all of that was accomplished. Here's one more from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It says, the sun, meaning Jesus, is the shining brightness of God's glory. He is the exact likeness of his being. We open the service with that verse. He uses his powerful word to hold all things together. He provided the way for people to be made pure from what? Sin's our enemy. It's not our friend. We need to be free from it. And his sacrificial death provides the basis for our trust so that we can turn away from that which is destroying us. Then he sat down at the right hand of the king, the majesty in heaven. Now we come into the mystery, something called the trinity of God. God has eternally existed in three distinct persons, but known as one true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, they are co-eternal, and yet they're distinct. The Father speaks to the Son. The Son speaks to the Father. They each speak to the Holy Spirit. They are three in one. One God eternally existed in three persons. We will not understand this while we are still in these bodies and in this dimension. But once we receive our resurrection body and all the lights are turned on, we'll go, oh, now we get it. Now we know how you could be three and yet one. So that's hinted at in that verse. So Thomas awakens finally after three and a half years to the true identity of Jesus. He realized he's been walking around, eating and sleeping day in and day out with none other than God. The one that spoke and the universe came into existence. He says to Jesus after he touches those wounds, he says, my Lord and my God. My Lord meaning you are the one that I will follow fully in devotion for the rest of my days. Legend has it that Thomas went off to India, became an apostle to India, and ended up ultimately dying a martyr's death there. Now, we don't know for sure if those records are accurate, but it's certainly believable. So God would have us to awaken to Jesus' true identity, but he would also like each of us to awaken to Jesus' timeless intentions. Thomas was still thinking like a typical Jew of his day. He had that that thought lodged in his head of what the Messiah was supposed to do and what the Messiah was going to be like. And even though he had been around Jesus three and a half years, like we said earlier, it's hard to get rid of some thoughts that are lodged in people's minds, no matter how often you explain it to them in different ways. So he needed to be awakened that Jesus was working out things that God had in mind from all eternity. In other words, Jesus was culminating the plan that God had before anything came into existence.
We tend sometimes when we read the Bible to think that God's reactionary. You know, oh, shoot, he put man in the Garden of Eden, and man, you know, gets tempted by Satan and falls. He's like, oh, man, now what do I do? Okay, I got a new idea. got a new plan. I'm going to do this. You know, no, 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 no. God has known from all eternity past before he created any angel or any human that both angels and humans would break trust with him and that it would be necessary for him to sacrificially reveal himself to bring the trusting kind of relationship that he longs to have with both angels and humans. And so Jesus going to the cross was not a poor, uh, a poor mis- misfortune of some sort. He, he knew it. He kept talking about it all through his ministry. He said in John 10, he said, I laid down my life. He said, nobody can take it from me, but I'm going to lay it down so that I can take it back again. It was planned that the sacrificial love of God would be revealed. So Thomas needed to awaken to that. And maybe, maybe some of us still need to as well. In the book of 1 Timothy, the apostle Paul writing to Timothy, who was overseeing some churches, particularly in Ephesus, trying to work out some problems. He says to Timothy, he says, look, this is good and acceptable. If you read the verses earlier, he's talking about praying for those in authority and so forth. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Notice he calls Jesus what? God, God, our what? Jesus is known as the Savior, but he's talking about Jesus, and he calls him God. God, our Savior, who desires all men to what? Does God want everybody to be saved? Yes. Yes. But to be saved, people have to come to what? The knowledge of the truth. We, We have to know the truth about God, that he is sacrificially loving, though he's almighty, before we will trust him. We have to know the truth about life. We have to know why things are as they are. We have to know the truth about ourselves, and God comes to reveal all that to us. When we become convinced, man, I've been living crazy. My desires have been ruling my life, and they've been leading me down dead-end streets. Sin is really bad for me. God's right. He's been right all along. I get it. You only want to lead me into the highest possible life I can have. I need to come to the knowledge of the truth about God, the truth about sin, the truth about myself, the truth about society. Why society? The wreck that it is. It is Because human beings are living detached from trust in their creator. And the result is what we see every day. People colliding in often violent ways with one another. Entire nations doing so. Here's another one about the timeless intentions of God worked out in Jesus. He, meaning Jesus, he is the very Savior who rescues us from this present perverse age dominated by evil. How does he rescue us from this this present perverse age which is dominated by evil? How does he do this? By giving his life according to our Father's will to deal with our what? So his sacrificial death, it's made to assure our hearts we can trust him. He's merciful. He's kind. He's good. And it's meant then to change our minds about sin to really believe that he's trying to save us from something that's hurting us, not helping us. It is not the spice of life. It is the kiss of death. But until I become convinced of that in my own heart... He can't really free me from those things. But his sacrificial death was meant to do that. In Hebrews, once again, chapter 9, and I love this particular verse. It says, he has now appeared once at the end of the ages. Why? Why did he appear once at the end of the ages? Meaning when he was on earth at a time. To get rid of what? Sin. 
But how's he going to get rid of sin? What does it say? See, that's how you read the Bible. You, you, you got to learn when you read a scripture, you break it down. You ask it questions. He's appeared now at the end of the age. Why? To get rid of sin. How? By sacrificing himself. Now, you have to think that through, see, because you still don't have the answer. you got to meditate on it a bit. How's he going to get rid of sin in me? How is he going to convince me to stop sinning? How is he going to get me where I believe authentically in the core of my being that sin is hurting me, hurting the world? So much do I believe it that I'm actually going to, by my own free will, abandon it. Well, his methodology is to give his life a sacrifice to show that he loves me more than I could ever love myself. He knows what's best for me. He wants what's best for me. And I come to the conclusion, you know what? I've been a fool. I've been trusting myself and my own desires. I'm done. I'm going to put my trust in you. You're the creator of the universe, and you love me enough to die for me. And if you say sin is my enemy, and it brings death, and it's destroying me, I'm letting it go. I don't want it anymore. It's like poison why would i want to continue to drink poison his sacrificial death is meant to convince of convince us of that so thomas awakens to jesus true identity and he awakens to jesus timeless intentions he had a lot of the same jewish mentality of what the the christ the messiah was supposed to do so it was a life changing awakening now, i'm going to say something that someone would challenge and and it might shock you thomas was not a convert until then. Thomas was not what we would call a Christian until then. Thomas walked with Jesus for three and a half years, witnessed all his miracles, and he was not yet converted. Do you think somebody could sit in a church for 25 years and not be converted? You better know it. If you can witness the miracles of Jesus, even raising people from the dead on three different occasions and not be converted, and he was not converted, I won't believe unless I put my hands in his wounds. He was not converted. So can it be for people being exposed to truth but not penetrated by the truth. For Thomas, it was his conversion. It was his born anew experience. For me, it was 1973, summer 1973. I don't remember the exact day. I don't remember the exact month. I know it was summertime, 1973. I was 23 years old. From age 13 to 23, I pretty much did everything that a human being shouldn't do. By the time I was 23, and it's going to sound really stupid to some of you, I felt like I was so stinking old. I felt like I had been everywhere, done everything, and seen way, way, way too much. Way more than a young kid should ever have seen and done more than a young kid should ever have done. In fact, my testimony is on YouTube. I won't give the whole thing now, but, but I did a little 15-minute version of it recently. It's on YouTube if you're interested. But in 1973, it, I was done. I was just done. I, I was... I was at that point where I just knew there had to be more to life than just what I was experiencing and my friends were experiencing. I was terrified of losing my friends, but I was more terrified of living the way that I was living. 1973, through an assortment of very unusual circumstances, the message of Christ came into my life and I became a follower of Jesus in 1973. That was my awakening that was the time when instead of following Randy and Randy's ideas and Randy's desires, I put my trust in Christ. And from that point on, I've said, I want to follow you. 
I want to. you got to get that part. I want to follow you. I'm not following you because I'm scared and I want to go to heaven. I, I trust you. You love me enough to die for me. You were smart enough to create the universe. I want to follow you. I want to learn your ways. I want to learn all your ways. I have given my life since age 23 to learning Jesus' ways, not because of anything other than he won my trust. And I wanted to be like him. And I still, every day of my life, want to grow to be like him. Now I want to go through a few points of an awakening that occurred to Thomas that God wants to give to each of us before we leave here today. Here we go. God wants to awaken us to the fraudulent power of fear, force, and death. Thomas needed to be awakened. It looked like the reason that Thomas, I think, became so confused is that when Jesus was on that cross and those religious leaders were mocking him and making fun of him and he was beaten to a pulp and they were saying, oh, if you're the Christ, come on down from the cross. Jesus looked beaten. It looked like at the end of the day that brutal governmental power and physical violence and physical force and scheming and lying of religion, it looked like that it had all power. It looked like it had won. Jesus to Thomas looked beaten, just another sad, beaten, weak human being. But Jesus' resurrection proved by letting humanity do its worst, he proved that those things are limited in what they can do. And he did that so that you and I would not live in fear and that we would not be afraid of those that use force and brutality and scheming and lying and that we would not even be afraid of death. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, don't be afraid of those that can put your body to death. He said, be, be afraid if you're going to be afraid. Be afraid of someone that can destroy your entire existence spirit and soul and body in a place called hell. So Thomas needed to be awakened, and we all need to be awakened. Don't get hung up with governments of any kind. Don't get hung up with power and military might and brutality and violence. It's limited. All it can do is kill you and kill me. And Jesus' resurrection proves we don't have to fear even death. Number two. Awaken to the shallowness of immediate messianic interventionism. I know you're thinking, what the heck does he mean, messianic intervention? The Jews of, of that day, Thomas, was one that believed the Messiah was going to intervene in human history with power, the same kind of governmental power, the same kind of militaristic power that the Romans and other armies used, that he was going to intervene and just stop people, kind of snatch people by the neck and stop them from doing evil out of force. Intervene. I hear people all the time say, I don't know why God's letting this happen today. Why doesn't he intervene and save those little kids? Why doesn't he intervene and stop that, that injustice? Yada, yada. Messianic interventionism. Let me tell you why he's not doing it. It's because he's doing something that's going to last forever. He's going to intervene once and for all. But he was working out something timeless. He was trying to get human beings to the place where they were reconciled to him. And when you just use force, you don't change a person's heart. You can only change a person's heart by winning their trust. And that's what Jesus' sacrificial death was about. Shallowness of immediate messianic intervention. He needed to awaken to the potential of misjudging ourselves and others. Thomas... Thomas was taking an arrogant posture. His fellow disciples, they said, we've seen the Lord. We've seen him. He's alive just like he said. And Thomas 
kind of disdainfully, I don't believe it unless I poke my hand in his wounds. He was kind of saying, in effect, you're a bunch of scared children, and you're just being led by your emotions. I'm the adult in the room. I'm going to only be led by what I see. But he was wrong. He was wrong. So sometimes we need to be awakened to our potential of misjudging ourselves and others because we always judge ourselves in a brighter light than what might be accurate. Again, one more. Awaken to the expanded understanding of God's ultimate purposes. Thomas was just thinking like a regular Jew of the day. Push the Romans out of here and put the Jews back on the ruling spot. But no, no, no. God was working out something bigger. He wanted to regain the trust of all humanity if possible. And to do that, he had to show his sacrificial nature. And then finally this. Awaken to the utter trustworthiness of Jesus' words. Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples he was going to be killed in Jerusalem by the religious leaders, but that he would rise from the dead on the third day. Thomas spiritualized it. Oh, whatever it means, it doesn't mean he's literally going to die. The Messiah is not literally going to die. Yes, he was. And for you and I today, we need to understand that when we read God's word today, it's just as relevant as it ever was. We need to trust it. We need to rely on it and put our lives behind it. So, what kind of awakening, what kind of awakening might God in love want to bring to you today? Maybe, maybe, like Thomas, you look like a Christ follower but you're not authentically, inwardly converted. From the inside, you haven't really come to trust Christ. And because you trust him, you want so much to be like him and to follow him. Rather, you're just trying to figure out a way to make it to heaven. You want, you want to make sure that elevator is moving. It's going to go up instead of down. And, and you're just working out, trying to find some kind of a mechanistic deal with God. That is not real conversion. That's not what God wants. And so maybe today your awakening is, man, I've been calling myself a Christian Four, you fill in the date, year, 10 years, three, 30 years. But I now know, like Thomas, I was not yet really converted. And today I'm awakened. Today I actually want to put my trust in Christ, become its follower. Maybe some of us also, like Thomas, need to be awakened to some of the timeless things that God wants to do and why he's allowing some of the difficult things to occur now because he's working out something that's going to be eternally better. And maybe we've been bristling against God in certain areas in our life because some things are happening that we don't exactly like and we need to be awake and they like that song we sang, he's good, your goodness is always running after us. He's good even when our circumstances are not good. So I'm not sure what it might be that we're needing to be awakened to today, but all of us can be awakened to get a better picture of Jesus' true identity as well as the, his timeless intentions for us and for the universe. And so I hope that, that the Spirit of God will, to some degree, give that to each of us today. So let's pray, and you consider what your personal awakening might be. Father, we thank you that you have so given and revealed yourself to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us this day to be honest with you and honest with ourselves. And may we each be awakened in the way that we most need it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.